Uh, well, good morning, everyone. We have returned to Romans 11. The, the title of today's message is The Unchangeable Faithfulness of God. And let's, uh, let's just begin by reading the, uh, <clears throat> the first six verses of Romans chapter 11. <clears throat> Paul writes, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the need to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. The word of the Lord. So this morning, um, as we begin uh, our or return to our study of the book of Romans. Uh, just as we've been doing since the beginning of chapter 9, we're to continue to consider uh, what God has to say about the nation of Israel and Israel's place in God's sovereign plan. And to help us get started, I think it would be, again, once again, helpful to kind of rehearse the history of God's relationship with Israel that he has revealed to us in God's word. So we know from Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, that God sovereignly chose the, chose the Jews to be his, quote, treasured possession out of all the peoples of the earth. God set his heart upon this people, and he called them his treasured possession. So beginning with Abraham, God set the Jews apart. He set his grace upon this, these people. He made a covenant with them. He gave them his word to live by, and he called them to lives of faithful obedience after him. But unfortunately, as we see throughout all of the scriptures, the Jews rebelled against God, and they continually turned their hearts unto idols. In fact, this was their consistent pattern. And if you remember the last time I taught, we saw that it was the circular pattern that happened within the history of the Jews. God sets his favor upon them. They rebel. In judgment, God sends often nations to oppress them. In that oppression, the Jews cry out for help to the Lord again. Lord, save us. God hears their plea. And in grace, he sends a deliverer to rescue them from the oppression. They live for a period of time in faithfulness, if you will, but it's often short-lived. And sure enough, they are back in rebellion by placing themselves in a form of idolatry, always whoring after other idols. And the cycle continued. And then, again, judgment would come. It would just go round and round and round. And this propensity for rebellion climaxed when they rejected and crucified 
their long-awaited Messiah, the Son of God himself, our Lord Jesus. That was the climax of their rebellion. And it was at that point that God stopped this insidious cycle that he was working with in terms of delivering them out of their oppression. Instead of delivering Israel from its oppressors, the word tells us that God set Israel aside. He actually takes his favor off of them. And as a people group, he sets them aside and he turns his focus and pours his grace upon a new and a different people group. Up to that point, God's commentary on Israel was what we see in Romans 10.21. All day long, I have held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. That's God's opinion of Israel in one summary. And then from that point on, God in judgment said to them, as we see in Romans 10.19, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And the foolish nation that God turns his attention to was the Gentiles, the Gentiles of the world. This is the people about whom God said, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Israel, the chosen people of God, had rebelled against God one too many times. God had suffered long their idolatrous ways, but even God's patience has its limit. We understand that God is omnipresent. We understand that God is omnipotent, right? But he is not omnipatient. His patience has its borders. And as a result of their idolatry, when this climax hit in the rejection of the Messiah, God sets his affection and grace on the people who weren't his first choice, and that being the Gentiles of the world. And so this is the backdrop that we have as we enter into Romans 11 and the verses that we read this morning. And Paul begins the chapter by asking the question that anyone would ask, given the summary of God's relationship with Israel that I just presented to you. And that question is this. Has God rejected his people? That word rejected actually means to forcefully push away. You know, you could, you could be handed something and you can just kind of reject it outright. But this is like an active, forceful rejection of the people of Israel. That's the question that, 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 that's being asked here. Has he done that? Has he forcefully just pushed them away? In light of Israel's rejection of Messiah and God's turning his attention to the Gentiles, has God finally washed his hands of the Israel, Israelites? Has he forcefully pushed the Jews away and ended his relationship with them once and for all? Is it officially over for Israel in God's economy? And what's Paul's answer? Second half of verse, or the first half of verse one. By no means. Other translations put it this way. The King James renders that God forbid. And every one of these is with an exclamation point afterwards. It's emphatic. The new king says, certainly not. The New American Standard says, far from it. And, uh, and the Legacy Standard says, may it never be. In the Greek language, those phrases that I just rendered to you there is, is the Greek words, may genotai. And that is the strongest negative in the Greek language that can be uttered. The strongest negative statement that can be uttered. 
And it's a phrase that Paul has already used eight times in the book of Romans. And he's done that every time to emphatically repudiate wrong conclusions that can be come to, that people come to when reading God's word. Wrong conclusions about God, wrong conclusions about the law, wrong conclusions about sin, and wrong conclusions about the gospel. And let's, I thought it would be interesting if we just looked at some of these things, uh, rehearsed them of what Paul has given us in Romans already about where else has he said, by no means, absolutely not, is this possible? And so we're, we, you don't have to go there, you can listen or you can turn if you'd like. But back in Romans chapter 3, the scriptures tells us that we are justified by grace through faith, right? That's the heart of the gospel. He says in that passage, he asks the question, does justification by grace through faith overthrow the law? Is it somehow overthrowing the law that God had said was good? And to that he asks, he answers, by no means. There's no way that the gospel overthrows the law that God originally created. Then in chapter 6, he goes on, and it says that the scriptures tell us that where sin increased, grace abounded more. He asked the question, are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means, absolutely not. Then later on in chapter 6, he says this, he says, you are not under law, but under grace, right? We know that as, as believers in Christ, we are no longer under law, but under grace. He asks the question, are we to sin freely now because we are no longer under sin's dominion, under the law's heavy constraints? Can we live just an antinomian life, no restraint, because we're under grace? By no means, absolutely not. That is a wrong conclusion if that's what you're coming to. Then look at ver in chapter 7, verses 5 through 7. It tells us that in the flesh the law arouses our sinful passions. Does this mean that the law is somehow sinful? That the law is evil for stirring up our sinful passions? To that, Paul says again, absolutely not, by no means. Next one in, in Romans chapter 7, he declares in verses 10 through 13 that the law is holy, righteous, and good. Then he asks the question, did that which is good, speaking of the law, did that which is good bring death to me? Is the law responsible for my spiritual death? By no means, Paul answers. It was sin producing death in me by way of the law. And then lastly, as we saw in one of our previous sessions together in Romans chapter 9, it says that God loved Jacob and hated Esau. The question that arises, is there injustice in God's election? And what's Paul's answer? By no means. He has mercy on whom he has mercy, and he has compassion on whom he has compassion. So for each one of these conclusions, for every one of these wrong conclusions that, that people might come to as a result of just a surface reading of God's word, the Holy Spirit through Paul makes it very clear that God's position is that each one of these conclusions and assertions is absolutely wrong. They are 100% unthinkable. And if you notice, when you consider each one of those conclusions individually, each one of them is an assertion that is an attempt to either find fault with God himself, to find fault with, God, with God's word, or to make a mockery of the gospel. 
Oftentimes we hear objections like that, that people almost say things because they just want to kind of mock what you're actually asserting and find some kind of error within it that they can kind of poke holes in. And each one of these is birthed, if you will, by the same satanic spirit which prompted the serpent to say to Eve in Genesis 3, has God really said you shall not eat from the tree of the garden? You will not certainly die, for God knows that on the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God, knowing good and evil. So right from the beginning, Satan has sought to thwart God's plans and to undermine his authority by attempting men to come to wrong conclusions about his word. And this is an important lesson for us to keep in mind. Because when we, and it's especially in the context of when we hear God's word preached or when we are reading God's word on our own. If we're ever tempted by something we read or someone or something that someone says to come to a conclusion where we are in any way questioning the holiness of God, the faithfulness of God, or the wisdom of God, we can be sure that it is a temptation from the enemy himself or from the vestiges of the old man that is still within us that still has corrupted ways of thinking. God is pristine. He is holy, righteous, and just. He's perfect, and in him is no darkness at all. He does not err because he cannot err. It's impossible for God to do evil or wrong. Everything he does is right. And to conclude or conjecture otherwise is wrong and it is sin. The, the fault is not in God's word. The fault is in us, in what we bring to our reading of the scripture. And we twist it oftentimes to satisfy our own preconceptions, or our own faulty thinking. Now, Job learned this, didn't he? He suffered valiantly for a while. When you read through the book of Job, it's amazing how he responds to his friends when they challenge him and where he is and, 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 and actually put it upon him that the reason why he's suffering is because of sin that's in his life that he's just not coming to, face, facing, you know, coming to terms with. He's valiant in that suffering for a while. He defends God and he resists the temptation to charge God with any wrongdoing or injustice. But even he is pushed to the point where he begins to be tempted to question God and his ways. So let's take a quick look at that by turning to Job chapter 30. Job is one of Lisa's favorite books. Every, every time I turn to it, she gets excited. And understandably, we know why, because it is a very difficult book to read. What Job was given to suffer is, in our, in our frame of mind, almost unthinkable, unimaginable. Just before the Psalms, the first book before the Psalms. We have read wrong. No, I'm just So Job chapter 30, uh, starting in verse 18. Are you there yet, baby? Job, what did you say? 30. Right. So Job chapter, uh, chapter 30, verse 18. This is Job speaking. 
So he's gone through this incredible amount of suffering so far. And he gets to this point where he says, with great force, my garment is disfigured. It binds me around about like the collar of my tunic. God has cast me into the mire and I have become like dust and ashes. I cry to you for help and you do not answer me. I stand and you only look at me. You've turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. You lift me up on the wind. You make me ride on it and you toss me about in the roar of the storm. For I know that you will bring me to death and into the house appointed for all living. So there is just a glimpse of, of Job in his, in his suffering and in his, um, in his trying to work through in his mind, how can I make sense of this? And he gets pressed to this point where he sees God as the one who is the agent that is actively putting him through this suffering, wanting it, almost enjoying it. But God would not let that conclusion stand. No one, not even someone as righteous as Job was, could get away with an assertion that lays an injustice at God's feet. And we see this in Job chapter 38. Just turn there briefly again. Job chapter 38, starting in the first verse. This is after Job has had his say as well as his friends. And it says in verse 1 of Job chapter 38, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who, under, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band? And prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors? And said, thus far shall you come and no farther? And here shall your proud waves be stayed. A, an incredible moment where basically Job is forced to stand under the perfection of God and forced to face what he had just said about God and who God was. God is the one, as he declares there, I've made everything. I put everything in order. How are you questioning what I'm able to do? He puts Job in his place, and rightly so for Job and for anyone that ever questioned God at his justice. And when it comes to the mistaken idea that God has ended once and for all his special relationship with Israel, Paul applies this same strong repudiation of by no means, right? Having just learned the truth that the Jewish rejection of Jesus had prompted God to set them aside, it's very likely that the Gentiles in Rome, to whom Paul is writing, would immediately begin playing with this conclusion in their head. And why is that? Why would they come to the conclusion that God was done with Israel? Well, first, given that anti-Semitism runs naturally in human beings, 
as a result of the fall. And then second, given that anti-Semitism still lingers as a temptation, even within the redeemed, and we know that to be absolutely true by looking at someone no other than, none other than Martin Luther. Martin Luther wrote a book specifically that says the Jews and their lies. And in that book, he actually says, he calls them a serpent's brood, burn their synagogues down and destroy them. And this is, this is the words from the man who was the Lord used to uncover the gospel from the dark ages and bring it out into the light. The, the whole doctrine of justification by faith, clearly one of our champions, and yet he still held this anti-Semitic fervor within his heart. It's unthinkable, but, it's, but it is real. It's within each one of us, that possibility. So it's understandable why people would jump to that conclusion that, yeah, God's done with them. <laughs> they, they screwed up. They, they, they killed the Messiah. That's why, that's why through history, uh, Christians, unfortunately, have referred to the Jews as the Christ killers. It's a horrible, horrible thing. They never, they never saw themselves also as Christ killers. It was always the Jews that were the Christ killers. And so it makes sense to, to the fallen man that God would reject them and cut them off. I mean, if you just kind of think of it just naturally within ourselves, we would do the same thing if someone killed our son, right? That's the natural conclusion we would come to. I want nothing to do with that person who killed my son. But then additionally, there was already a, a friction that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles in the church at Rome. If you remember when I talked about that early on in the book of Romans, as the context that was there. So this in turn caused them to separate into enclaves where the, the Gentiles worshipped together and the Jewish believers worshipped together, but not all as one mixed multitude. And so that estrangement would have no doubt tempted the believers to play with this cutting off conclusion in their heads. They could reasonably say, yeah, God, God cut them off for what they did to Jesus. But Paul puts an immediate stop to that speculation using the strongest language that was available to him to refute it. He says, absolutely not. May it never be, by no means. So in other words, Paul is telling the church that regardless of what their partially sanctified and yet still fallible minds might initially be thinking, their conclusion regarding God's all-out rejection of Israel is wrong, as the former president used to say. Wrong. God has not rejected the Jews. And he proves his point by providing evidence that backs up his assertion. First, Paul points to the obvious. He is a Jew and he believes in Jesus. Look at verse 1b, the second half of verse 1. For I myself, this is in Romans, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So context-wise, Paul is writing to the Romans in the mid-50s, looking somewhere between 55 and 57 AD. So this is 20-plus years after the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus and the birth of the church. And here, Paul is one of many Jews who are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, it was 3,000 Jews that were added to the church on the day of Pentecost, and then many more that were added after that. So the early church was predominantly made up of Jews. 
If God had truly rejected them, neither Paul nor any other Jew would have ever believed. And in fact, since Pentecost, as John MacArthur points out, the church has never been without a believing Jewish remnant. There have always been Jews as members of the church ever since the day of Pentecost. So he uses the fact that he is a Jew to be his first piece of evidence that God has not rejected Israel outright. Next, Paul tells his readers that God has not rejected Israel precisely because of the fact that out of all the people groups in the world, they have had a special place in God's unchanging heart before the foundation of the world. Now, that's an important thing to keep in mind. That's why I emphasize that, that idea of an unchanging heart. As a result of his holiness and perfection, God cannot have a change of heart. He does not change his mind. The hymn writer was absolutely right. Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. He is unchanging. And Numbers 23, 19 even puts it more emphatically. It puts it this way. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. He does not change his mind. Everything he desires and everything he chooses to do is perfect and perfect the first time. He, the Lord does not have do-overs. What he chooses is, is correct and right, spot on, 100% of the time. And that is extremely important to keep in mind as we consider this next verse. Look at verse 2a of Romans, chapter 11. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now that word foreknew is not simply being aware of something beforehand. You know, it's not like he's looking out into history and seeing what the Jews are going to do. Rather, it is an active predetermination that it will come to pass. For God to foreknow something is to preordain it, to guarantee it's coming to pass. And because God has predetermined in eternity past to set his grace and love upon the Jews forever, he can and will never totally reject them. Listen to what, he, what Samuel, the prophet Samuel says in the Old Testament to unbelieving Israel. This is Israel. They, they have rejected God to be their king. And they have asked Samuel for a king, right? And, and the Lord gives them a king in Saul. But listen to what Samuel says to them. They realize that they have sinned against God in that desire. Samuel says this in 1 Samuel 12, verses 20 through 22. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. Okay, listen to this. This is the point. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. It is for his namesake that he will not reject the Israelites. Israel is, is going to be kept, and he will fulfill his promises to them, not because of their goodness, not because of their merit, but because of his namesake. 
He's promised it, and he will not go back on his name. And commentator F.F. F. Bruce just makes this point. You know that we read in Romans uh, chapter 8 where it says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. F.F. F. Bruce says that that line, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, is a principle that has not been set aside in the case of the Jews. Despite their consistent wholesale turning from God, his purpose in choosing his people is fully safeguarded. And that is a great word of assurance to anyone that's wondering, has God done, is he done with Israel? And absolutely not. And then lastly, Paul points to the scriptures to prove that God has not rejected his people Israel. And he does so by reminding them of the truth that God reveals to us about this matter of the Jews and God's relationship with them. He does it by pointing to the account of the contest between Elijah and the prophets of Baal in the Old Testament book of 1 Kings. So we read that in verses 2b through verse 6 in Romans. Let's read that again. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So the truth that's revealed to us here is that no matter how unfaithful Israel is as a people group, God will always have a believing remnant among them. Always. And it's that believing remnant, a remnant notice, that has not earned it by good works, but rather a remnant chosen by grace, which is the clear and unequivocal evidence that proves that God has not forsaken his chosen people Israel. You know, theologians with their amillennial and postmillennial musings may have written off Israel by way of their doctrine that says the church has replaced Israel as the chosen people of God. But the fact that the Jews are, as a people group, still exist after all these years and all the persecutions that they've gone under, and that among them is an ever-present remnant that trusts in the Lord Jesus, all of this clearly shows that their conclusions are wrong, meaning these theologians, and that God has not abandoned and forsaken Israel due to their unbelief. For now, he has simply set them aside. Notice, if you jump down to verse 25 of chapter 11, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Then he, in his perfect faithfulness to them, will turn once again to the Jews, and he will fulfill his promises to them until all Israel is saved. He will fulfill every aspect of his word. And this truth is so important to understand and to agree with and wholeheartedly embrace as a cornerstone for our own faith. Because it's not only a truth that's an invaluable benefit to Israel, but it's a truth that is invaluable to us as believers within the church that God has birthed since Pentecost. God is unchangeably faithful to the promise that he has made to Israel. If he is in that way, you can rest assured that he will be unchangeably faithful to us 
in every promise that he has made in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is, that is huge. God, again, going back to that whole idea that God is unchanging. And it's the assurance of that truth that will sustain every one of us in any season and circumstance of life that we're in. If he's assured us that Christ has fully forgiven our sins, it is absolutely true. He will not go back on that promise. He will not go back on that truth. If he's assured us that Christ, in Christ we are no longer condemned, we know that that is absolutely true. If God has promised us that he will always be with us and that he will never leave us or forsake us, regardless of circumstance, he will be ever faithful to that promise. We can count on it. It is a reality that we can bank our lives on. If he's promised you that in Christ no weapon fashioned against you can prevail, you can count on it. If Jesus has promised to come again, to take you to himself so that we might be with him wherever he is, we know that that is true. That is happening. That will happen. God is unchangeably faithful in everything he says and does. It is that truth which serves as the strong foundation that he's given us to fearlessly stand on. And so that's, that's hugely important for each one of us to remember or to remind each other of, especially when we're going through seasons that are especially difficult. Because that's at the moment that we weaken, that our knees buckle, and that we begin to look like Peter did on the crashing waves, thinking that's the reality and we're going to get swamped and not realizing that it's our Savior who's walking on the water towards us to redeem us, to save us out of that disaster. That's the essence of faith. Now we've got a few minutes, and what I wanted to do to finish up our time together is actually to read through the account that Paul refers to in this passage of the uh, the competition, if you will, between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, and how it, how it all uh, led through. I want to I want to want us to read about the context of it. I want us to read that actual event, and then bring us to the place where, in the scriptures, it actually tells us what Paul refers to in Romans about God promising that He has a remnant, even though the rest of Israel is unfaithful. And I think through this passage, for me as I went through it, it's just extremely instructive and encouraging and helpful. And it, and uh, because we're not oftentimes in other passages of the Old Testament other than Genesis, I thought it'd be a great chance for us to kind of walk through it again. So we're going to just do a lot of scripture reading here, and I'll just do a few comments along the way. So let's turn to 1 Kings chapter 16. Go for a little ride with the prophet Elijah. Verse Kings 16, and we're going to pick up in verse 29. And this is going to set the context of what we're looking at. So this is Old Testament Israel. They, uh, at this time, are under the uh, governance of a king. And this passage tells us about the king that is in charge at this time in Israel. Starting in verse 29 of chapter 16. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. 
And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In, the, in the, his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by, by Joshua, the son of Nun. So this is the context that we're entering first off with Israel. They are being governed by an ungodly king. And as the scripture says there, that he was an un, such an ungodly king that he was doing more evil than even any of the other evil kings that preceded him. Um, he takes on for his wife, the woman Jezebel, from the people of the Sidonians. The Sidonians, if you go back in the scriptures, they were actually one of the people groups that were supposed to have been driven out of the land of Canaan, which Israel failed to do. So they were clearly a people that God did not want his people associating with. And here Ahab takes this ungodly wife to himself. And she leads him, just like Solomon's wives did, into idolatry. Because the Sidonians were an idolatrous people that worshipped the fertility god Baal. And notice in that passage we just read, the king himself of Israel built a house for Baal to be worshipped in. It's, in. it's remarkable, considering Israel's history. And then even, and, and so it says there that this provoked God to anger more than any other king did. So clearly God is, is deeply uh, angered by what Israel is doing here. And not only that, at the end of the passage there, it talks about that whole idea of rebuilding Jericho. Back in, in the book of Joshua, in, um, uh, let's see, in Joshua 6.26, there is actually Joshua, the Holy Spirit working through Joshua, pronounces a curse upon anyone that would seek to rebuild the city of Jericho. And yet here, under the king's sanction in Israel, they're rebuilding Jericho. So all of this is just heaping up this, uh, this total amount of, of, of sin that is just uh, putrid in the Lord's nostrils. He just hates what Israel is doing at this time. So this is the backdrop that serves for us the context at which Elijah and the prophets of Baal will get into in, in, the, in the contest that they're going to be facing off with each other. So let's jump down to 1 Kings chapter 18. <clears throat> Starting in verse 1, it says, uh, After many days the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive, and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And we're going to skip down to verse 17. 
When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, troubler of Israel? And he calls him troubler of Israel because it is because of God using Elijah to pray for a drought to come upon Israel as judgment. That's why Ahab sees Elijah as the bad guy. He says, you're, you're the trouble of Israel. You're the one who caused this drought. And Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Just a quick aside there, you know, at this point you can see where Israel is spiritually they they are like laodicea of revelation they are if at, at best lukewarm they will not make a choice either for god or for Baal. clearly that means they're always in for Baal. and then when challenged on it they don't say a word and the lord clearly tells us in his word that we cannot serve two masters we must serve one or the other but this is where israel is at this point they are they are clearly serving Baal, yet having this veneer that they love the lord Verse 22, then Elijah said to the people, I, even I, only am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bowl and prepare it first, for you are many. And call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bowl that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. And no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, crying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after, the custom, after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. That's a pretty remarkable passage there. Or a reminder that there is only one God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of our and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, in Isaiah 45, 5, he says, I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God besides me. Of course they got no answer. They were praying to no God. And no God is what answered them. Uh, yeah. So we move on. Verse 30. <clears throat> then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. 
And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it upon the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood and the stones and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let no one of them, let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. So as God's people, we're to honor God in everything that we do, right? I mean, Elijah shows this for us in this account. First off, notice the first thing he does there is that he repairs the altar of the Lord. So he's, he, he goes and he does what is needed in order to do a proper sacrifice unto the Lord. He doesn't just do something willy-nilly. He takes care to make sure that the altar is prepared in such a way that it is a, a, a place of true honor unto the Lord. Then secondly... He boldly asks with faith for what he wants. He declared it and said, Lord, show them who you are. And that just reminded me of that, of that verse in James, that the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Don't be afraid to ask God boldly for the things that are in our hearts that we know are right and good. Third, he prays with the motivation that God's glory be visibly manifested in the answer. So that's the key here. That's what, that's what drives and gives guardrails to our prayers. It's not that we're asking God for whatever we want and asking it boldly like some type of positive affirmation. We're asking that God's will be done and that he would be glorified in the midst of it. It's his honor that we should be seeking. And then the great thing about it, he's so kind and generous to us that he blesses us so often with the things that we absolutely want and even more. And then fourth, he obeys God's command to put to death the false prophets that were corrupting Israel. And, and, and in the same way, so he follows what has been given to them in the Old Testament by God in the book of Deuteronomy. Because it said that any false prophet that comes, you are to put to death and they're faithful to that. In the same way, as much as we are not to be putting to death our enemies that are proclaiming false prophecy, but God does call us in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 with these words, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ being ready to punish every disobedience 
when your obedience is complete. So the Lord has given us his word and his spirit to actively be fighting against that which we would consider false prophecy, false utterances about God, anything that would lead people away. That was 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 6. Then jump down to verse Kings, uh, chapter 19, starting in verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, speaking of Elijah, and he rose and he ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of, the, of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. So there, first remember, this gives us some insight. Whenever we do the Lord's work, Whenever we fulfill our role as his ambassador in this world, whenever we confront this sinful world with the truth that agitates, or if we take a stand for righteousness, we can expect that resistance and persecution is going to follow. Arrows are going to fly. It just comes part and parcel with being an ambassador for the Lord. If you notice what Elijah did, he stood for the Lord publicly. He confronted the prophets of Baal publicly. And now he's paying the price because Jezebel wants to come after him with a vengeance. The Lord said, a servant is not greater than his master. Remember the word <clears throat> I said to you, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So that is just a comes part and parcel with walking with the Lord. But then second, it's an unfortunate reality that even after we see God work in our lives and provide in incredible ways, we're all prone to the malady of what I call spiritual Alzheimer's. It's the condition that afflicted the Israelites, remember, when they got rescued, if you will, from uh, Egypt out of slavery, right? They spent some time in the wilderness. All of a sudden, once things started getting tough, they completely forgot about the miracles that they just saw the Lord bring them. And they, they started pining and wanting to go back to uh, Egypt. They forgot all about what God had done for them. And that is precisely what we see Elijah doing here. He had just seen what God had done in a, an absolutely miraculous way. It was in, it, You couldn't argue it. Everyone saw it, and he was right there to, to be witness to it. And yet he was gripped by fear the minute he heard that someone wanted to come after him as a result of that. So the lesson, perhaps, that we might learn from this is to be on our guard against this tendency because, and, and the way we do it is by staying in close communion with the Lord and rehearsing what he has already done for each one of us in our lives. Because we are short in memory. We are often the types of people that say, what have you done for me lately, Lord? 
But if we sit down and did a list of what the Lord has done for us already since he has saved us, our, I'm sure our lists would, would abound. So that is one way we might keep short uh, accounts with the Lord and stay strong in our trust in him. And then lastly, we'll finish up here in the last verses of 1 Kings 19, uh, beginning in verse 9. <clears throat> there he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire sound, excuse me, after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So this is a passage of restoration, if you will, for Elijah, right? In this case, it's the restoration of Elijah to his role as a prophet. God allowed, in fact, ordained him to go through this faith-shaking experience that he had. Right. But then he faithfully reorients his thinking and puts him back into the game. Notice how the restoration takes place. So <clears throat> Elijah's away and he's hiding. He's, he's lying down under this broom tree all by himself. And the Lord meets him there. And first he takes care of him in that place. Right. He faithfully ministers to him. And then he calls him and he leads him up to Mount Horeb. So he calls him away from the retreat and up to the mount. So it's just him and the Lord. And there God engages with him. Notice that he doesn't, he never browbeats Elijah for his, for his fear. He never chastens him for that. He just calls him up. And God engages with Elijah, prompting the prophet to open up his heart to him. Because essentially, this is his paraphrase. Woe is me, Lord. I've been faithful. I'm a man who's jealous for you and your honor. Everyone else has been a jerk. And now I'm the only faithful man in Israel. Wah, wah, wah. You know, he's basically <laughs> crying that he thinks he's the only guy that had any faith to follow after the Lord. <laughs> to this, God meets Elijah right where he is. Notice he gives him, again, he doesn't chasten him. He doesn't rebuke him. He gives him marching orders. He tells him how things are going to work out. 
And then he gives him the work of assurance that he needed to hear. He was not alone. As bleak and as dark as the circumstances seem to be, God had not given up the ghost of Israel. At that time, if you think about how ungodly they were, they all went after Baal, a fertility god, after God had done incredible things for them. And yet he still said to Elijah, I still have 7,000 that haven't bowed to, to Baal. You're not alone. You are still numbered amongst my people. He was still at work, and as bad as things were, and even though the whole nation might appear to be apostate, God was not done with Israel at that time. He had his remnant then, and he absolutely has his remnant now, even in the midst of what they're facing at the moment. Even as we might say that what they encountered recently may in some form be a judgment of God, and yet he's still preserving them. He preserved them through the Holocaust. He preserved them through the Six-Day War. He preserved them through what they recently went through. And he will preserve them, as we know, in the end times, when all of the world and Satan himself will come after them. He will still keep them. And so in a world where, where men and women are no longer men and women of their word, right? In a world where integrity and faithfulness are a foreign concept to many, it's a tremendous blessing to know that our God is truly unchangeably faithful to his people. He's faithful to his people, Israel, and his people, he's faithful to us, his people, the church. And he will bring us all both together as one people when he returns, when the Lord Jesus comes to reign on earth. To him be glory and honor and praise. Father, thank you for your word and that you've given us this insight that we might have clarity in these times where we hear so much that tries to get us thinking in different ways and, and to make us believe that, Lord, you have just given up on Israel. And I thank you that your promise is true, that you will never turn your back on them, that you always have a faithful remnant, and that when the day is finished, when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, Lord, we know that you will be faithful to save all Israel. They will look upon our Savior whom they pierced, whom we all pierced, and you will receive all glory in that day. We look forward to it, Lord. Thank you for this word of insight. Please use it in our hearts and increase our faith and our trust in you, our unchangeably faithful God. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.